This is FX Radio, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook, and with me on the line today is none other than the esteemed Professor Michael Hollick, the, truly the world expert in vitamin D. So welcome, Michael. Oh, it's a pleasure to always be with you, Mike. Thank you. Michael, there's been some uh, quite controversial um, papers being published just recently regarding vitamin D. So what I'd like to do today is to do a sort of roundup of some of the upcoming trials and maybe some of the previous trials that have happened. And we'll talk more about this vitamin D controversy, the sort of really taking the wind. Very interesting that the media always takes the negative aspect on this. It's like a tall poppy syndrome. But you've got some very exciting things um, coming up in the future. Um, that might sort of change that that um, that viewpoint. But let's go through some of these upcoming trials around the world that I've sort of been reading about. First thing, the Vital D study, um, where they're giving you know two thousand IU plus uh, sorry or omega three fatty acids, and there's sort of four arms here. Um, can you give a wrap up of what that study is looking at and your uh, opinion of whether you think it's going to have a positive or a negative outcome? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm a consultant for this um, activity and uh, also in the process of, of uh, applying for an ancillary grant to look at some specific issues regarding um, some of the uh, subjects that are getting the 2,000 units of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. But the long story short is that um, uh, Dr. Manson, Joanne Manson, um, had apply for this grant, this very large grant, and it's, and it's going to be where they're going to be sending out to people throughout the United States, um, and, and these are adults over the age of 50, uh, either 2,000 units of vitamin D a day, a placebo, and or omega-3 fatty acids, and ask the question, does taking omega-3 fatty acids really have any impact on reducing risk of cancer and heart disease? And the same is with vitamin D. Yeah. One of the issues, however, is that because the Institute of Medicine has recommended for adults over the age of 70 that they could take up to 800 units a day as their RDA, the placebo group could take up to 800 units of vitamin D a day. Right. And therefore, the question will be is that if enough of the placebo group has already taken a vitamin D supplement, you know, will you be able to see a significant difference mm. of 800 versus 2,000 units a day? Mm. And my understanding is that a majority of the subjects, in fact, are not taking a vitamin D supplement. The good news is that they're going to be measuring baseline and uh, and study over the period of time of this past next five years, mm-hmm. blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D, so that they'll be able to at least look at these different outcomes, which is uh, colon cancer and various other cancers and heart disease, stroke hypertension, bone health, and relate it to their baseline 25-hydroxy vitamin D and if there's any improvement whatsoever um, to their, uh, you know, mid-study or end-of-study 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. Mm. They're also going to be measuring bone formation, bone resorption markers. Um, so they're going to be measuring markers of uh, inflammation. So there should be a huge amount of information that could flow from this study. And now that they're going to have blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D, they may be able to put it uh, all together. Yeah. So like I said, the concern, of course, is 
the placebo group could take up to 800 units a day. Yeah. And that in itself is likely to have an effect. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a really interesting thing that you mentioned about high potential. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, when we last spoke, we, we um, were talking about uh, the review that Bollard and Reed did in New, Ze- in New Zealand, and they basically trounced vitamin D, just saying there's there's no point in looking at it further for bone health and things like that. Um, but um, I think you said that they didn't do prior and and in study measurements of um, of vitamin D levels. Um, Correct. Yeah, that's part of the problem. I mean, not that they didn't do it, but what they did was that they did basically the an analysis. They did not do a new study, which is kind of what yeah. the press implies. Yeah, but they simply looked at previous studies. Most of those studies were using 400 units of vitamin D a day, so an inadequate dose of vitamin D, mm. and they didn't really do a very good job in measuring baseline or end of study. Twenfidoxy D didn't measure bone resorption and formation markers, so there are a whole host of reasons mm. why. Just putting a bunch of studies together mm. and saying that in some these studies don't demonstrate benefit, well, not a surprise. Mm. I mean, they weren't getting the kind of vitamin D that we think you need to satisfy your body's vitamin D requirement, even for bone health. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I pulled out looking at the their data was um, they had one of the trials that used a higher dose of vitamin D as having a negative outcome and put it in the negative box, if you like. Um, but that trial was the one where they gave 500,000 IU once a year in fall um, and looked at falls, and they had an increase in falls. Well, it's not actually the case with <laughs> that that's necessarily negative. What it shows is that vitamin D works very, very quickly on muscle, and it can't work quickly on bone. Is that? Do you remember that study? Exactly. Mm. Yeah, these yeah these are these are elderly nursing home residents that probably don't see the light of day. All of a sudden, they're vitamin D deficient, and they're now getting this energy boost of vitamin D yeah. and feeling a heck of a lot better, being more active and therefore more likely to be at risk of falling and therefore fracturing. Yeah. And if you look at the data set, they showed that there was a 31% increased risk for fracture out of three months, but no significant increased risk for fracture and falling out of about six months. Yeah. So you have to wonder about that data set. And I agree with you that it was probably the likelihood that they corrected the osteomalacia, aches and pains and bones and muscles and muscle weakness. Proximal muscle weakness is a classic uh, example for vitamin D deficiency. People feel better, so they're going to be more active. They're likely to fall. They're elderly. They have low bone mass, so they're going to fracture. Mm. And it's really interesting that um, um, watching the sort of fallout from that study and the comments from from uh, other people around the world, and then they they answer those comments and they they basically try and trounce each comment. It's, it's very um, almost vitriolic. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, there are other studies that were done way before they did the study in Scandinavian countries, and they showed that 500,000 units twice a year in nursing home residents uh, definitely maintain bone density and reduce risk of falling and fracture. Wow. There's a lot more that needs to come out about, um, about the results from that uh, meta-analysis, that's for sure. One other study that I've picked up on recently is a, a local one to me. It's in Queensland, and it's called the D-Health Study, run by the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Can you give us a wrap-up on what that trial is going to be looking at and what, what your um, um, forecast is for the future of it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, they're, they're interested in giving these high doses of vitamin D. Um, I think the intervention is 100,000 units right every three months for a year. Mm. So it's about 1,100 units a day. And they looked at, you know, blood pressure markers and, um, you know, and various other issues regarding cardiovascular disease and basically concluded that there wasn't any significant benefit. But yet, when they looked more carefully at their data, um, those that had the lowest blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, it appeared to be a risk factor for hypertension. Mm. And so herein lies the problem with these studies. You really need to look at the baseline 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels. If you're vitamin D sufficient, you know, you're and now you're giving vitamin D, you're less likely to see a significant benefit. But there are a lot of studies out there where uh, individuals that are significantly vitamin D deficient, if you improve their vitamin D status, that they uh, did quite well. Yeah, and I think this is, a, a, I guess, a bit of a caveat in you know, testing baselines. What we need to do in these trials is looking at baseline um, studies of vitamin D compared to treatment levels. But we don't need to do that in practice even every day. We need this data so that we can pull out the effects. But when we're looking at a clinical impl- um, application of it, we're testing t- way too much. We need to be asking more simple questions like, do you go out into the midday sun for five minutes? Is that right? Amen. And also, yeah, and not only that, but, you know, I think that to me it's a, it's a little bit uh, ingenuous to think that you you know you've been vitamin D deficient for a very long period of time, and you really increase your risk for many of these chronic illnesses, and then expect to just start taking vitamin D for a couple of months or even a year or two, and mm. expect to see a dramatic reversal. Mm. Um, you know many of these outcome measures, yeah. and that's why we continue to promote adequate vitamin D from birth until death because we think it really does play a role in maintenance of good health. Yeah. One of the other things that I have a question about these trials, where they're using, you know, what we would term up to be appreciable levels of vitamin D for most people or for many people. But unfortunately, the sad fact of our Western society, particularly in America and Australia, is that uh, we're way overweight. So um, when we're looking at 2000 IU as an, as an, um, an intervention, a daily intervention, in obese people, we may have to times that by three to five times to get the same sort of effect as in somebody of normal um, uh, body mass index. So, again, when we're looking at these trials, when you're looking at a, a larger population, half of them at least are going to be way overweight. Can you just take out half of those that they're going to be non-responders, or like how do you how do you answer that question with an, with this sort of dose? Right. So that is absolutely an issue. And um, and as you probably are aware, there was this very interesting New England Journal article that came out by Dr. Powell um, looking at um, blood levels of 25 hydroxy vitamin D and the vitamin D binding protein mm. and then relating it to the bioavailable 25 hydroxy vitamin D. Right. And, you know, all of that probably is playing a role as well. But like you said, we know that if you have a BMI of greater than 30, that you have a marked decrease in your blood level of 25-hydroxy vitamin D, and to be able to treat and maintain vitamin D sufficiency, they need two up to five times more vitamin D. So you're right. We think that 
uh, a good dose of vitamin D is two to 3,000 units a day. That's what I have all my patients on. I personally take 3,000 units a day. Blood level in the range of 100 to 125 uh, nanomoles per liter. And um, if you're obese, you may need to be on six to 8,000 units, up to 10,000 units of vitamin D a day, just to raise your blood level into this range that we think is the healthy range. Mm. And, and most studies don't take that into account. So again, in a trial situation, it's really important to do baseline and treatment levels. And maybe some of these trials should be looking at um, the effects that are seen when you raise um, the serum level of vitamin D to a certain level. Exactly. Yeah. Is there any trials coming up looking at that? It's so important to measure baseline 25-oxyvitamin D and, you know, probably mid-course study to be sure that they're compliant and that you're getting the the desired level for 25-oxyvitamin D and certainly Mm. at the end of the study to be sure that the level is in what we consider to be the healthy range, which the Endocrine Society recommends is about 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter. Yeah. Be very interesting to look at that as an intervention. But I also take that point that you made previously and you make again, is that um, the review by Bollard didn't even look at the measurements and so you can't even be sure that people actually took the supplements. It's a big issue with compliance, as we know. Exactly. Mm. The two largest studies that have looked at vitamin D and bone health, one is the record study out of Great Britain and the other is the Women's Health Initiative. Mm -hmm. And both of those studies, they didn't have baseline and end of, of study 24 doxy vitamin D levels and they admitted that probably upwards of 50 to 60 percent of the time these people weren't taking what they were supposed to be so that their compliance rate was very low. Yeah in fact um, I also read in one of the studies that was a negative study recently and it might have been the one looking at hypertension with no effect and they said but this in the even in the abstract they say that this study has got limitations by the um the adherence to um to take the uh, the active yeah i mean you, you have to kind of wonder why these things get published yeah, <laughs> if you don't take it why would you expect it to work mm-hmm. so so i have to ask this next question and you know it's it's a very cynical question to ask him but I have to ask it. If investigators continued to use these low doses in trials, we know that we've got issues with obesity. They're not measuring baseline nor treatment levels. Surely they've got a fair idea that they're going to have um, you know, a poor outcome or a negative outcome in the trial. Why do they continue to churn out these trials? Well, part of the reason is that... Um the IRBs have been very concerned that if the Institute of Medicine recommends 600 units for most children and adults, 800 units for um, adults over the age of 70, mm-hmm. with a safe upper limit of 4,000 units, and before uh, 2010, the safe upper limit was 2,000 units. So the IRBs were reluctant to give approval to be giving these higher doses. And furthermore, there continues to be this issue that if you get a blood level of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, much above 150 nanomoles per liter, they have what's called a U-shaped curve. So that whereas everybody agrees that if you increase your vitamin D intake, if you're vitamin D deficient, you reduce your risk for mortality Mm -hmm. and you maintain that lower risk, 
But then all of a sudden, at around 150 nanomoles per liter, they say that now, all of a sudden, mortality risk is going up or that risk for cardiovascular disease is going up or cancer is going up. Mm -hmm. And so people have been reluctant to be giving higher doses, getting much above 150 nanomoles per liter, which is where we think people should be at between about 100 and 150 nanomoles per liter to have the beneficial effects of the vitamin D. Right. So it's more of a sort of erring on the side of being scared or, you know, caution rather than looking at therapeutic exactly. effects sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's the major issue and that many of these trials, a lot of the investigators don't have very much clinical experience with vitamin D mm-hmm. so, and that they're new to the field and so they're not really sure exactly what they're doing. And so as a result, they kind of, you know, use the Institute of Medicine's recommendations and, uh, you know, I feel comfortable in doing so. Mm. Okay, so just to, if you like, answer a a bit of a whimsical question on that safety aspect, with your vast expertise in using vitamin D over decades in patients, many hundreds and hundreds of patients, where do you see toxicity being an issue? Yeah, I typically give my all my patients, and we published the pap- two papers on this now, um, up to six years I've done this, is to give 50,000 units once a week for eight weeks. It's equivalent to about 6,000 units a day. Mm-hmm. Fill up the empty vitamin D tank, even yep. if they're vitamin D sufficient. And I give them 50,000 units once a week for eight weeks. They may raise their blood level to maybe from about um, 50 or 60 nanomoles per liter up to about 80 to 100 nanomoles per liter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no consequence, no toxicity. I then put my patients on 50,000 units every two weeks forever, which is basically equivalent of 3,000 units a day. And again, we published a paper, Archives of Internal Medicine, 2009, and showed that there was no toxicity and that everybody was able to maintain healthy blood levels mm-hmm. above 75 nanomoles per liter most around 100 to 150 nanomoles per litre. Right. Okay, so um, if I can, not a devil's advocate's question, but just to sort of check you on that. Um, so you give, you tend to give larger bolus doses less frequently. And some trials are sort of saying, well, some investigators are asking the question, is it reasonable that we give higher doses less frequently or should be looking at lower dosages more frequently? which obviously you've got an issue with compliance doing that. What do you find to be more effective in your practice? Sure. Well, the reason I do this is because in the United States, the only pharmaceutical form, believe it or not, is 50,000 units. Right. And so as a result, because I give it as a prescription, Mm -hmm. and because patients want it as a prescription, they're more likely to take it and be compliant with it. And because the pharmacy will also call them on a monthly basis to tell them, by the way, pick up your prescription, that it's very effective. Right. However, for those that wish to take a supplement, I just tell them, go to your local pharmacy and to get a 2,000 unit supplement. Hmm. And then to supplement that with a multivitamin that contains 1,000 units of vitamin D. So they're getting about 3,000 units a day. And it works identically. Yeah. And I think that there's one huge thing in my book that that we need to also um, advocate to patients, and that is the safe sun exposure policy. No question about it. I mean, you know, there was a nice study done in Africa where they showed that 
uh, Maasai warriors that are outside all the time. Their blood levels on average were about a 115 nanomoles per liter, which really tells us evolutionarily, I think, where we all should be. Mm-hmm. We developed an app, you know, D-M-I-N-D-E-R dot info, that is for free. You can use it now in Australia or anywhere on the globe, mm-hmm. and it'll tell you how much vitamin D you're making based on your skin type, time of day, season, and your latitude. So, and I usually recommend always protect your face, most sun exposed, most sun damaged, but arms, legs, abdomen, and back is perfectly fine. And that the amount of skin that you expose, the more vitamin D that you make. So the less time you need to be outside. That's right. That, I, I've got to say, I use that D-Minder app, and you know, as you know, I live in Queensland, Australia, so we get scorching sun up there. And um, also, along with that, we have the highest incidence of melanoma in Queensland as well, which is genetically linked. But this D-Minder app is very useful because you can put in your skin type, and that's what I find really, really unique about this app is that so people of various, let's say the fairer skin types who have got you know, fair skin, red hair, freckles, um, and who are at increased risk of melanoma, then they can put that into the app and it will tell them to decrease the amount of time that they get sun exposure. Exactly. So we built into that app um, a warning sign so that we say, you've made this amount of vitamin D, you now have had enough sun exposure, wear sun protection or get out of the sun. Yeah, yeah. I love that safety aspect. It's brilliant. Um, I'm a really big advocate because... You know, this is the thing about sunlight is we get it for free. We we evolved as beings on this earth, not salamanders. We should be, you know, exposing our bodies to sunlight. But obviously, um, with the fairer skin types that have evolved over millennia, and now we're encroaching on the hotter climates, which is not where we evolved the fairer skin types. (laughs) No question about it. I mean, even Neanderthals, they now know from the genetic analysis that they had a... um, a a mutation of their uh, melanocyte uh, stimulating hormone receptor and therefore were likely to be Celtic and redheaded. Oh, really? Yeah. So they believe now these dark hairy neanderthals that we've always been brought up to believe, you know, were these kind of hairy creatures. Mm-hmm. They could never have existed in Europe. They would have died wow. early because of vitamin D deficiency and inability to procreate. Yeah. And so they lost their skin pigment in order to be able to survive. Yeah. And I remember in your talk, just about that inability to procreate, there was also a skeletal change in that, wasn't there? In the hips, in the, the pelvic um, canal. Yeah. If, if, yeah. If a child is vitamin D deficient during the first couple of years of life female, they have a flat form pelvis, a small pelvic outlet. So they have a difficult, if not impossible time with childbirth. Wow. Interesting, interesting stuff. So let's move on now to a recent trial, and this one was co-authored by you. This was the vitamin D favorably alters the cancer-promoting prostaglandin cascade um, paper. Can you explain and elucidate what happened with that trial? Please. Sure. What we did was um, Dr. Ed Souter, who's a surgeon and is very, very good at this, was taking... um, cells from the breast, and these are the cells that typically um, can develop into cancer. They're the most likely cells to, to develop into cancer. Mm-hmm. And what, what they did was to incubate them with um, 
125-hydroxyvitamin D, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, and also uh, celecoxib, which is, as you know, an anti-inflammatory agent, and to see whether or not the combination of the two may have further anti-inflammatory activity, which may be a precipitating factor for inducing these cells to become malignant. And what was found, curiously, was that um, the vitamin D component um, was um, an, uh, did not find it to be additive or synergistic, mm-hmm. but um, the effect um, with the celecoxib um, demonstrated that the PGE2 and COX2 levels decreased um, in the breast of women that were treated um, first in these cultured cells, and then when these women were given 2,000 units of vitamin D um, plus celecoxib, mm. uh, and these cells were taken out and looked at, that they had a significant impact on the inflammatory activity. So this could be one of the explanations for why vitamin D may be of some value in reducing risk for breast cancer. Right. And I, I do remember a, um, a paper that was talking about using 10,000 IU per day in estrogen negative and positive breast cancer patients. I'm just wondering if I got the, that paper. Have you read that paper? Because that sort I of seems... I don't read the details. Right. That, that seems to tie in with that, that, that um, you know, uh, whether they were giving this vitamin D um, because the patients were indoors, I don't know. Um, so, in other words, they were just merely correcting a vitamin D deficiency, but they were using 10,000 IU per day. I remember that. Mm. Yeah, and so I'm getting back to that issue of how much vitamin D causes toxicity. I mean, literally, you have to take tens of thousands of units of vitamin D a day yeah. for at least a half a year before you even have to begin to worry about toxicity. And typically, you, you'd have to get above about... Um, 500 nanomoles per liter before you would have to worry about toxicity. So there's a big latitude in terms of how much vitamin D you can take and worrying about the toxic side effects. And just for your listeners, vitamin D toxicity does not mean an elevated blood level of 25-hydroxyvitamin D because I see a lot of docs referring their patients to me with a blood level, say, of 200 nanomoles per liter, and they're saying that patient's vitamin D toxic. No, what you have to really see is a suppression of PTH, an elevation of the serum calcium, and often the serum phosphate. Those are kind of pathognomonic for vitamin D intoxication. Right. So they look at um, measuring the calcium levels, their corrected calcium score, and alkaline phosphatase, their parathyroid hormone. Is that correct? So uh, Yeah, alkaline phosphatase is usually normal. Right. But the PTH is suppressed because the calcium is up. Gotcha. And then if you really want to be absolutely sure, you, know, you can not only collect the calcium with your albumin, but also you can ionize calcium. Right. Okay, thanks for that. That's great. All right, so another one. Uh, uh, trial was on the genomics of vitamin D, and this has you as the primary author. This one's very interesting. Can you talk about the conclusions of that trial, please, Michael? Sure. So long story short is that, you know, there were a lot of studies underway, mostly in vitro studies, suggesting that vitamin D may have an immunologic effect. 
So what we decided to do was to take healthy adults, and these are principally medical students and graduate students at our institution. We know from our past experience that they're all vitamin D deficient or insufficient. Their blood levels are usually in the range of about 45 to 50 nanomoles per liter. And we gave them either 400 or 2,000 units of vitamin D a day for three months. Mm -hmm. And what we did was we collected, obviously, blood, not only to measure baseline and end-of-study 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels to be sure that they were compliant and that we had the desired effect of raising their vitamin D status, but we also got their white blood cells. And we isolated the RNA from the white blood cells and then did broad gene expression analysis of over 22,500 genes and asked the question, at baseline for this individual, compared to taking 2,000 units of vitamin D a day after three months and getting another um, blood uh, and isolating their white blood cells, mm -hmm. was there any significant change in the genes that um, may be controlling a whole variety of metabolic processes? And we were pleasantly surprised to find that the 2,000 units a day had influenced some two, over 200 genes, about 271 genes. And when we looked at the functions of these genes, they controlled up to 80 different metabolic processes. And that includes regulating uh, uh, auto-oxidation, which of course is a very important component now of inflammation as well as for malignancy, um, altering immune function, um, altering uh, DNA repair, and the list goes on. So I think what we've demonstrated for the first time is this non-calcemic benefit, this direct non-calcemic benefit of simply increasing your vitamin D intake for a period of three months, raising your blood level from about 45 to 50 nanomoles per liter up to about 75 to 100 nanomoles per liter. And by doing so, markedly improved the uh, expression of genes that are important for immunologic um, health as well as overall health and well-being. Mm. And, and this ties in with recent research that was looking at uh, vitamin D's use in um, helping people with lupus. So, you know, admittedly, things like cancer, we're talking about a decades-long progression to disease. Same with cardiovascular disease. So as you said earlier, it can be quite hard when you're saying, oh, well, let's take vitamin D for 12 weeks and see if it will decrease the, your risk of cancer, which develops over the last 30, 40 years. It's a little bit hard maybe to track in a short time. But with autoimmune diseases, hard as they are to treat, sometimes you can have a dramatic effect on dampening the um, inflammatory response. So can you go through the action of vitamin D in autoimmune disorders and what the recent research is, is uh, revealing in that aspect? Sure, but just to uh, get back originally to, to this concept of cancer and the, you know, the, the issue regarding how long it takes to develop and the role of vitamin D. Yeah. But there are now several studies that have demonstrated that patients with cancer, mm. if they improve their vitamin D status, that they have decreased risk for mortality from that cancer. So from, there is a right. I actually, yes, you're right. I remember the melanoma um, paper. Yeah. 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 And uh, even breast cancer now, they've, they've been able to show it. And so regarding the immune effects, it was shown over 30 years ago that inactivated 
B and T lymphocytes have no vitamin D receptor, but monocytes did. And we now understand a little bit more about this process. When you activate a T or B lymphocyte, all of a sudden these lymphocytes start expressing a vitamin D receptor. Mm -hmm. So now you know that these active B and T lymphocytes are now going to be wanting to see some active vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And we now also realize that monocytes will now convert 25-hydroxyvitamin D to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which interacts with the receptor, not only in the monocyte, but we think that the monocyte may, in fact, release the 125-D locally to activate the TMB lymphocytes to control their function. So in macrophages and monocytes, it was demonstrated by Adams and Maudlin and Liu that... Um, one of the first things that gets turned on in a macrophage that's, say, infected with the TB, so the lipopolysaccharide component of TB interacts with toll-like receptor, is that the cell is told to increase production of the active form of vitamin D, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. It now goes back into the nucleus, interacts with its vitamin D receptor, and now increases the expression of cathalocytin, which is a defense in protein that specifically can lice and kill infective agents mm -hmm. like TB. Yep. So we think that it plays a very important role in helping to fight infectious diseases, acute infectious diseases. But on the other side, T and B lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, active form of vitamin D down-regulates immunoglobulin synthesis. Now, you may think, oh my gosh, if you do that, that you're now increasing your risk for infection. But the other side of the coin is, what if, in fact, and we believe that this is true, that 125D is actually modulating immunologic, uh, immunoglobulin synthesis, mm -hmm. and that if you were to develop, say, a slow viral infection that may be responsible for causing type 1 diabetes or multiple sclerosis yeah. and now all of a sudden you're mounting an immune response 1.5 dihydroxyvitamin D by modulating immunoglobulin synthesis may be reducing the risk for developing autoimmunity to, to these infectious diseases and reducing risk for both MS as well as type 1 diabetes right. we think the same may be true for rheumatoid arthritis as well as for even Crohn's disease. Right. T, T lymphocytes, we now know that the T1 to T2 ratio uh, is significantly changed when 125-dihydroxyvitamin D uh, interacts with these lymphocytes, uh, making them uh, more prone to be favorable lymphocytes, less likely to be reactive to its host, i.e., to cause autoimmune disease, but yet help to fight infection and inflammatory processes. So that can also answer the the way that macrophages get hijacked by cancers, basically, to uh, propagate cancer rather than kill them, the, the tumor-associated macrophages. Correct. And we think that, um, you know, that, that the, this happens in granulomatous disorders, even like sarcoid, yeah. that these macrophages are coming in, they're trying to do their thing, that they may not be 
as successful, but they're definitely producing 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which is kind of the driver for the engine to help the, the macrophage do its thing, is to help to help the macrophage function, yeah. um, be able to affect either malignant cells and or infectious processes. Right. So, so as an intervention in, let's take autoimmune diseases, um, disorders for a category, if we looked at things like... Um, well, firstly, lupus, where there were some recent positive trials with using vitamin D, um, but also the caveats that are associated with things like sarcoid, which you just mentioned previously. Can you talk to us about what sort of interventional levels you use um, of vitamin D in the various disorders and um, you know how quickly you'd expect them to work or what sort of outcomes you'd expect? It depends on the circumstance, and so we, what we always do is to, um, and all my patients, and, and I alert them, is that they definitely need to monitor their calcium, their 25-oxyvitamin D, um, corrected calcium for sure, yep. and maybe even 24-hour urine calcium to be sure that you're not having any side effects. Mm. With that said, we know that typically about 90% of patients with sarcoid have hypercalciuria, 10% can develop hypercalcemia. And the major reason is because these macrophages produce 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which enters the circulation and then has effects on your calcium metabolism in both the intestine and bone. Mm -hmm. So for sarcoid patients, I usually caution them and I only put them on an amount of vitamin D that gets their blood levels in the range of about 50 to about 65 or 70 nanomoles per liter. Mm -hmm. In that range, they can be basically vitamin D sufficient for, for, for themselves because of their sarcoid activity yeah. and not cause hypercalcemia or significant hypercalciuria. The other side of the coin, though, is for patients with lupus who aren't necessarily having activated macrophages making 125-dihydroxyvitamin D is that we will give them more vitamin D, as I've given my now MS patients more vitamin D, even my rheumatoid arthritis patients more vitamin D, see if I can improve muscle function for MS patients, maybe improve the honeymoon period. For rheumatoid arthritis patients, some of them tell me that they feel better by being on higher doses of vitamin D. So some of them are on 10 up to 20,000 units of vitamin D a day, mm -hmm. but I watch very carefully, making sure that their um, their total calcium, ionized calcium, and corrected calcium are normal. I often will do a 24-hour urine calcium, but if I don't see any change, PGH doesn't change, I know that I can maintain their 25-hydroxyvitamin D level even around 300 nanomoles per liter and um, possibly have some anti-inflammatory activity for these chronic illnesses while not causing toxicity. Mm. And I think um, to, to tie this in, if you like, to the, the comment, comments that we made right at the beginning regarding testing, that for most people it's not appropriate, but for these conditions and for those people who are at risk, um, then obviously testing a baseline and, and your, your um, various measures of toxicity in those um, predisposed people... Um, that these are the relevant group to be testing in. Exactly. And just to put this into perspective, because I know that, that this testing is be ver becoming very controversial because it's the most ordered test in the United States. Mm. 
my understanding is in Australia, somewhere around 80 to $100 million Australian dollars is being spent on that assay. So you're right. We do not recommend testing. Sensible sun exposure, getting the amount of vitamin D that I've been recommending, the Endocrine Society has been recommending, 1,000 units for children, two to 3,000 units for adults, and more if you're obese. But think about it, is that if you have rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, some of these medications are incredibly expensive yeah. and toxic. And so if you can increase your vitamin D intake, and yes, you have to monitor their vitamin D status and their 24-hour urine calcium and the like, the expense for that um, and also the relative safety of this is so much better than many of these immunologic agents that are being used for treating rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, mm. you know, is cost-effective. Mm. And that's just such a perfect point for the appropriate testing of vitamin D levels. So, Michael, just as a wrap-up point, can you go through for the listeners those medications that actually decrease vitamin D or have issues with vitamin D metabolism? Sure. I think that um, the one that is well known, of course, are anti-seizure medications like Dilantin and Tegretol. Mm -hmm. uh, it was well documented over 40 years ago by Dent um, in England that children institutionalized on multiple anti-seizure medications had rickets and vitamin D deficiency and that they had a resistance to vitamin D. And it's all because these drugs specifically increase the catabolism of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And it's easy to overcome. It's to simply increase the vitamin D intake, monitor their 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels. Usually they need about three to five times more vitamin D when they're on an anti-seizure medication. Prednisone will do the same thing. And so as a result, people that are on prednisone, A, they should increase their calcium intake by a little bit more from about 1,000 milligrams a day to 1,500 milligrams a day because prednisone decreases the efficiency of intestinal calcium absorption, but it also increases the destruction of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. So often patients need about two to three times more vitamin D in order to satisfy the vitamin D requirement. Also, rifampin, uh, even St. John's wort has been shown to increase the destruction of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. So that there are various medications out there that can uh, decrease your vitamin D status by increasing the destruction of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Also, if you're on cholestyramine, um, this will bind vitamin D so it won't permit you to absorb it. So you, or And some of these other um, products that are on the market to help prevent fat absorption or cholesterol absorption. They also prevent vitamin D absorption. So you need to take your vitamin D several hours before or several hours after taking these type of medications. Michael, perfect points and practice points for those practitioners that are listening today. Thank you so much for giving us the truth about what's happening really in the research with vitamin D. I thank you once again, Professor Michael Hollick. Thank you very much and have a delightful day. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Cool.